Welcome to Season 2 of Fracktown Gumshoe, Holy Fits, based on the novels by Deborah Gaskill. Chapter 8 My gut told me the information Mary Margaret gave me on the fake priest wasn't complete, and I probably shouldn't trust what Fiona was feeding me either. I punched in the words, Jeff Kovach, fake, priest, Ohio, Indiana, Pennsylvania, and FBI, and watched the sick, sad story unfold. From what I could find, Kovach started down his slimy trail after he became an adult. There were a few arrests for minor shit, mostly shoplifting, a couple incidents that landed him in a police blotter page of what I assumed to be his hometown paper, the Indianapolis Star, and a few other suburban papers. From there, he moved up. The next incident I could find was the story of two women, both homely bookish Mary Margaret types from Fort Wayne, who fell for him and simultaneously married him. One got pregnant, the other got smart, locating Kovach in the other apartment across town, not traveling with his job as he claimed three or four days a week. He disappeared soon after, but not before he cleaned out both women's savings accounts and left town. Their joint credit cards, financing stops in Los Angeles, Reno, and Lincoln, Nebraska, according to press reports. He turned up next in Idaho, according to the Boise Statesman. This time he was brother Jeff Kovach, renouncing the world and all its temptation, under the spiritual direction of someone known as Father Benjamin Wilkoff, a Benedictine who reportedly ran something called the Holy Mother Abbey outside of Pocatello. Wyckoff was apparently not a Benedictine, but he was a con man, and Kovach learned everything he could from him before they both left town on the heels of multiple indictments, apparently having fleeced their congregants out of nearly a hundred thousand bucks. From Pocatello, Kovach returned to his Midwest roots, but without his fake monk's robes. This time, he wooed and won over a Cleveland widow, then absconded with her dead husband's unexpired credit cards charging everything from jewelry, rental cars, and hotels to Caribbean vacations at all-inclusive resorts, apparently the bank fraud Fiona was telling me about. Then, for two years, and four years before the Indianapolis shootout, if my math was correct, Kovach fell off the face of the earth. I searched again, this time without his name, and got the list of aliases Fiona provided me with, along with what was becoming a familiar story. I even found Mary Margaret's story about Roger Clark and Ashtabula. By now, Catholic bishops in a three-state area were on to him, issuing warnings that appeared in church websites or on local newspapers. Kovach would set up a fake abbey or monastery, con the flock, and disappear when they caught on. The last story was the death of Agent Mark Rafferty in Indianapolis. I read the story again, which ended with his obituary. Rafferty is survived by his wife, Fiona, his parents, a brother and a sister. At least according to the story, there were no children. It didn't say whether Fiona was involved in the shootout or even an FBI agent. Was she lying to me about that too? That could be for her own safety, I reasoned. The home addresses of law enforcement officers were routinely exempt from public record searches, at least in Ohio. Had there been a threat made on Fiona's life? Maybe she was undercover for some reason. Who knows? She sure as hell wasn't going to open up to me about it, judging from her tone at the office today. According to Mary Margaret, St. Giles, or whoever the hell he was, 
bought the old house that housed St. Matilda's Abbey a year and a half ago. I wonder when building improvements to the house began. If I figured right, that was six months after he escaped with the money from his Indianapolis congregants in his pockets and the blood of an FBI agent on his hands. I looked up at the clock. It was nearly 10 o'clock and the June moon was shining in Gracie's office window. A quick phone call to the Pittsburgh office first thing tomorrow would tell me what I needed to know. Was she really an FBI agent? If she was, did her boss have an idea where she really was? Was Fiona actively seeking her husband's killer? Had she gone off the rails crazy with grief and revenge? More importantly, who was the woman I was going to St. Matilda's with tomorrow morning? Was she still the woman who saved my life nearly 20 years ago? Was I still safe with her? Or was I taking my life and Mary Margaret's in my hands? Wishing I had access to some of the databases the FPD utilized when I had access while a cop. That might have strung all these stories together and made my job a little easier. Barnes might run some of this information for me. But I didn't want to play that card until I needed to. My original mission, to get Eileen O'Connor away from that man I knew as Benedict St. Giles, didn't have to involve the police or the feds. If we could talk her into leaving St. Matilda's under her own power, so much the better. And if not, what would my next step be? I was already behind my office desk sucking down the second cup of thick coffee when Mary Margaret and Fiona arrived at the office at 6.15 in the morning. Mary Margaret was dressed like every other morning, badly. A gaudy skirt hung on her bony hips, and she clutched the hems of her poorly fitted white t-shirt's extra-long sleeves into her palms. She wore Birkenstocks on her feet, no makeup behind thick glasses. If we had to make any kind of run for it, those hippie shoes could be a problem. On the other side of the coin, Fiona was gorgeous. Her pink slacks hugged her hips, but her pant legs widened down near her feet, more than likely concealing an ankle holster. They matched the short jacket and flats she wore. A lacy white camisole was beneath the jacket, I assumed, along with a bulletproof vest. So does uh, Kevlar come in pink, too? I asked, looking her up and down. Screw you, Fitz. Fiona picked a donut out of the box on my desk and handed it to Mary Margaret before choosing one for herself. So, what's the plan? Just go out there and ask questions? The world's homeliest Nancy Drew asked. I think we want to be a little bit more specific than that, Fiona said gently. I rolled my eyes. Despite the donuts on my desk, this isn't a bakery. We don't sugarcoat shit around here. Let's talk about this in the excursion, I said, motioning towards the door. Once in the car, Fiona pulled a red wig and a thick pair of glasses from a bag she carried. Hanging her head between her knees, she fitted the wig over her head and slipped on the glasses. What the fuck is that for? I asked. Fiona adjusted the tall bouffant hair in the visor mirror and slipped a set of slightly irregular teeth over her own perfectly straight ones. If this really is Kovach, I don't want him recognizing me, she said, applying a thick coat of frosted pink lipstick and smacking her lips. I rolled my eyes, but didn't speak again until everyone was in and we were headed outside of town to St. Matilda's. We need to determine if she's there willingly and if she's lucid enough to make that decision, I said. Mary Margaret, Fiona here will represent herself as my employee. 
You are strictly there as a family member, okay? Can I ask her anything I want? Yes, but I especially want you to ask her one question. If she's willing to leave right now, but not until the time is right, her response will tell us what we need to know and how we need to progress. But regardless, you all need to follow my lead. Mary Margaret, don't do anything stupid. We were all silent for the remainder of the trip, an indication of how scared Mary Margaret was. In the office, she would have babbled for the whole damn day. With a slight smile on her lips, Fiona watched the farmland slide by us as I drove. I glanced over at her and wondered what she was thinking. Is she anticipating coming face to face with her husband's killer? What will she do when she does? The lights were on at the back of the old farmhouse when we pulled up to the circular driveway. Hopefully that meant the congregants of St. Matilda's were either at morning chapel or enjoying their Wheaties. Fiona was steely and calm, as I expected a cop or a former cop to be. Mary Margaret's eyes were filled with terror. That couldn't continue. Look over there, Mary Margaret, I said, pointing to the half-constructed wall of the chapel with its thin crucifix reaching into the dawn sunlight. I think that's what your Grammy paid for. Mary Margaret pierced her thin lips and sat up straight in the back of the excursion, pushing her thick glasses up her nose, hopefully screwing her courage up a notch or two. Okay, folks, Fiona said. Let's do this. We clustered around the front door and knocked forcefully. After a minute or two, a nun, who despite her black habit, could have been a real babe, answered the door. I'm Nicola Fitzhugh, a Fitzhugh Investigations. We're here to see a woman you call Sister Cecilia Eileen O'Connor, I said. I'm sorry, Sister Cecilia has... I didn't wait for her to finish her sentence, pushing into the foyer, which led into a wide, curved staircase. Where's your boss, Benedict St. Giles? He knows we're coming. My client wants to see her grandmother, now. The nun's eyes widened. Just a moment, sir. He's leading morning vespers. The service should be over in just... I want to see my Grammy now, Mary Margaret demanded. That doesn't mean in five minutes. That means now. Good girl. I shot an approving look at Fiona as the nun scurried away. In a few minutes... The man I knew as St. Giles came from the back of the house, dressed in white ecclesiastical robes and a green stole, both embroidered with gold thread. He had the same serene cult leader look on his face as he did the day I met him in the hayfield. His hands were clasped in front of him. If he recognized Fiona, he gave no sign of it, and neither did she. Mr. Fitzhugh, I expected you yesterday, he said gently, extending one hand. I had an unexpected interruption. I couldn't make it. I didn't shake his hand. As I told you, I have a client. This is Eileen O'Connor's granddaughter, Mary Margaret, who is very concerned that her grandmother is not here of her own free will. St. Giles turned to Fiona. And you are? My name is Susan Bukowski. I'm Mr. Fitzhugh's employee. Something flickered in St. Giles' eyes and disappeared. As I told you, Sister Cecilia is a contemplative, St. Giles continued. She speaks to no one but God. I will ask her to come down and see you, but if she doesn't want to, I can't force her. 
We'll follow you to where she is. I want to see my Grammy, Mary Margaret said. We are a semi-cloistered order. I can't allow you to, St. Giles began. I don't care what you want. I want to see my Grammy. She pushed past St. Giles and up the stairway. The three of us followed Mary Margaret up the stairs as she threw open one oak door after another to find spartan but empty rooms containing a single dresser and two twin beds. Pictures of Jesus hung above the end table between the twin beds. Each one of these simple beds held one of St. Giles's poor, deluded congregants, and if he had taken money from each one of them, he was a very rich man indeed. Grammy! Grammy! Where are you? Mary Margaret's voice echoed down the long hallway. Suddenly, a door at the end of the hallway opened and a tall, elderly nun stepped into view. Mary Margaret's crooked teeth were reflected in the nun's smile, and her long, gangly arms matched those of her granddaughters as well. Her eyes were vacant. It had to be Eileen O'Connor. Mary Margaret? Eileen's voice was soft. Grammy! Mary Margaret threw her arms around her grandmother's neck. I'm so happy to see you. Mom and I have been so worried. St. Giles, standing slightly behind me, cleared his throat loudly. Eileen did not respond to her granddaughter's hug. I would ask you, Mr. St. Giles, that you do not attempt to influence the conversation in any way, I said. I want to have this conversation in private. It's Abbot Benedict St. Giles, he responded. And may I remind you that you are on private property. I can have you removed. Whatever. I stepped closer to Eileen and leaned one shoulder against the hallway wall. My hands tucked deep in my jean pockets. Fiona hung back, observing. If St. Giles tried anything, she'd pin him to the floor in a heartbeat. Miss O'Connor, are you being well-treated here? Eileen shot a look at St. Giles before answering, one that reminded me of a whipped dog. I'm called Sister Cecilia now. What do you do all day, Grammy? Mary Margaret asked. I pray. I pray for people who are hurting. I pray for who are hungry, and I pray for justice in the world. Where do you eat? I asked. I personally bring Sister Cecilia her meals, St. Giles said, his voice filled with fake benevolence. Let her answer. You're not allowed to eat with others, or you prefer not to? I asked. I... I want to be by myself, Eileen said. It keeps me closer to God. What did you have for breakfast? I brought sister. I said let her answer for herself, and I glared at St. Giles. What did you have for breakfast? I don't eat a lot in the mornings most days, she said, twisting her hands anxiously. I had some coffee and a small roll. The sisters who work in the kitchen make wonderful cinnamon rolls. On mornings where they make eggs, I'll have a little bit, but mostly I have fruit. The answer seemed lucid. I pushed on. Are you treated well? You're not being physically abused? Can you go home anytime you want? Once again, she looked at St. Giles. I stepped in front of him to block whatever nasty looks he was sending. Eileen seemed to visibly relax, but handed me a non-answer. Or was that the dementia? We had a lovely salad yesterday. It had chicken breast and dried cranberries and walnuts and raspberry dressing, she said. At dinner last night was pork chops and dressing. 
At least St. Giles was feeding his flock well as he was fleecing them. But does anyone hurt you? Are you here because you want to be, not because you're forced to be? I asked. Do you want to stay here, Grammy? Mary Margaret broke in. Do you really? Mom and I want you to come home. We miss you and we love you so much. Eileen's eye twitched, and she was silent for a moment before answering. I can't go home, she said softly. What do you mean, Grammy? Won't they let you go home? No, I can't go home because I belong here. God wants me to stay here. I'm Sister Cecilia now. Grammy, please come home with us. Please. Tears fell down Mary Margaret's cheeks. I actually felt sorry for the poor kid. I can't, Eileen repeated. I need to stay here. I turned around and stared at St. Giles, who smiled at me, his green eyes snake-sharp. You see now, Sister Cecilia's here because she wants to be, and we at St. Matilda's truly are doing God's work, St. Giles said. We have stood against other accusations before. We will stand against them again in our efforts to bring the church back to what it should be. Many have accused us in the past, and many will accuse us in the future of perverting God's words and God's law. But we will come through it all. We will stand tall. After all, St. Matilda is our patron saint. Who the hell is St. Matilda? I asked. The patron saint of the falsely accused, of course. Please consider a small monthly donation to help us fund the cost of producing this podcast. Make no mistake, we do this podcast as a labor of love, but your support would be greatly appreciated. We've devised three levels of sponsorship, support, and rewards. Take a look at patron.podbean.com slash fracktowngumshoe. And thank you again for your support. This episode is narrated by Casey Martin. Fracktown Gumshoe is based on the novels by Deborah Gaskill.